Welcome to podcast number 71 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is October 15, 2019, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Charles Salzberg is a novelist, a journalist, and an acclaimed writing instructor. His new novel, Devil in the Hole, is a gripping work of literary crime fiction based on the notorious John List murders. It is on shelves now. He is the author of the Henry Swan Detective Series, Swan Dives In. Swan's last song, which was nominated for a Seamus Award for Best First P.I. Novel, and the upcoming Swan's Lake of Despair. His nonfiction books include On a Clear Day They Could See Seventh Place, Baseball's Ten Worst Teams of the Century, From Set Shot to Slam Dunk, An Oral History of the NBA, and co-author of My Zany Life and Times by Soupy Sales. He also wrote Catching Them Being Good and The Mad Fisherman. He has been a visiting professor at the S.I. Newhouse School of Public Communications in Syracuse University and has taught writing at Sarah Lawrence College, Hunter College, The Writer's Voice, and the New York Writer's Workshop, where he is a founding member. He is a consulting editor at the webzine Ducks.org and co-host with Jonathan Krevitz of the reading series Trumpet Fiction at KGB in New York City. His freelance work has appeared in such publications as Esquire, New York Magazine, GQ, L, Red Book, Ladies Home Journal, the New York Times Arts and Leisure Section, the New York Times Book Review, and the Los Angeles Times Book Review. It is my pleasure to bring on the show Charles Salzberg. <music> Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. Of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share their favorite detective story. On alternating weeks, we will hear from crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, John. It's great to be here. So uh, how are you doing down there in New York City today? Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. It's uh, in the low 70s, no humidity, blue sky. It's great. Great fall in New York. And I have to say that uh, we're doing the same just up uh, I-95 a little bit from you uh, as well. Uh, today, as we record this, is September 20th, Friday. And uh, starting things off, I want to congratulate you on your Seamus Award nominee for Second Story Man uh, as the best original private eye paperback. 
Well, thank you very much. It was so, a surprise. And yes, and, and a nice one to be nominated for your work. Uh, we had a surprise meeting, a uh, chance meeting, uh, a couple weeks ago down in New York City at Mysterious Bookshop at the uh, book signing of a previous podcast guest, uh, David Swinson. He was there to interview Casey Barrett uh, regarding his uh, book, uh, Tower of Songs. And uh, we had a chance to meet in person and talk a little bit. And it was a nice time. And then later on, we both had to catch trains back home. So, uh, and I knew that we were going to be talking today. So we'll continue that conversation now. So uh, you just told me before we came on uh, air that uh, you started uh, your writing career kind of late in life. So can you just start me from that point and, and move me through sure. the present? Sure. Well, it's not that my writing career started um, late. It's that my crime writing career started late. I actually, the only thing that I've ever done meaningful um, has been writing oriented. And I actually started in the mailroom at New York Magazine. I uh, worked there three months and then quit, not knowing I had no money. I don't know why I quit, except I knew I wanted to write, not be a magazine editor. So um, I, I sold the first two pieces that I wrote, and I thought this is going to be really easy. And I never wanted to be a nonfiction writer. I looked down on journalism. I thought that's easy. You know, you just go someplace and you ask some questions and you write what you saw. Um, I always wanted to write fiction. So I was writing fiction at the same time I was getting into a career as a magazine journalist. Hmm. And uh, and the and then I stopped writing fiction altogether because I had to make a living. And I started writing nonfiction books. I've had I've got about twenty five of those, either uh, some of them under my name, some of them collaborations, and some of them ghostwritten. And um, and so I've, I've actually always, except for a short time teaching in the public school system, and those three months, I've never held a real job since then. So, but in terms of getting published as a fiction writer, you're absolutely right. That, that didn't happen until late in life, even though it's kind of an interesting story, at least to me. I wrote a detective novel uh, tw- maybe 25 or 30 years ago. And in it, it was a little controversial ending. Um, and we can talk more about this later if you want. In any case, that book, it was praised, but it never got published. And 25 years later, I pulled that book out and I thought, this is pretty good. And um, maybe publishing has changed. And I can tell more of the story later, but it, that book got published. And that book is exactly 10 years ago, Swan's Last Song. And it was nominated for a Seamus Award for Best First P.I. novel. I didn't even know what a Seamus Award was. I had no idea what it was. I was going to write one novel, and to me, it wasn't even really about crime. And then I was never going to write another crime novel. And now, 10 years later, I think I have seven or eight of them uh, written. So that's the story. So I actually always was a writer. I just wasn't a crime writer. But you had... Uh, the beginning or the the raw clay of this book or this character 20-some years ago had a, a chance to allow that to, to simmer or marinate all that time. And what made you uh, dust off, dust it off and bring it back to life again? What, what new eyes did you have for it that made it something that you wanted to do? Well, it wasn't so much new eyes, but when I first wrote it, I don't even think, I, I, I typed. I, I was, I'm a very fast typist. I don't, I don't work very much, but when I work, I can type around 90 words a minute. So, um, I used to use an old-fashioned typewriter. So essentially, it wasn't like it was on my computer. It was actually taking up space as a m- manuscript. Okay. And, and so I saw it one day sitting on, a, you know, in, in a file cabinet, and I pulled it out. 
And it was it was a book that was written in anger about something that happened to me. And it was briefly I was um, Columbia. I was accepted into Columbia University's MFA program, and I had to um, give a manuscript that I finished. And I got this guy who was a um, who was supposed to be my professor or mentor, and he read it and he said, first of all, he lied. He said I got in by the skin of my teeth, but I had spoken to the head of the department and knew that wasn't true. And he said to me, "Don't you know how to tell a story?" And I, I thought, well, yeah, I know. And he said, you know, you write like uh, like Dostoevsky or Nabokov or um, Philip Roth, you know, that psychological kind of crap. And I thought he was complimenting me, frankly, but he wasn't. He said, you ought to go back and read Chekhov. Now, I was an English major. I read Chekhov. But I quit the program and I said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to prove to this guy that I know what a story is. I know. And so I'm going to write something with a very tight plot. And the only thing I could think of or the best thing was a detective novel because you have to plot a detective detective novel really well, because if it doesn't make sense to the reader, it's a failure. So I really, I really wrote that book um, on a, a dare to myself. But being a, what I considered a literary writer, and I knew I was never going to make it as, you know, write the best, the great American novel, I, I got through it and I realized or, or started it, that it was really about something else for me. It wasn't about finding a killer. It was about identity. And so really briefly, what happens is the, the main character is based on someone that I actually interviewed in my journalism career. He was uh, His name was Sidney Weinstein, and he was a skip tracer. And I didn't even know what a skip tracer was until I interviewed him. But some of the stories he told about the stuff he had to do fascinated me, and that character stayed with me. So when I decided to write a crime novel, I wanted to write it about the lowest of the low. It's a skip, skip tracer who repos cars, and he finds people who skipped on their bills, and he finds you know wives or husbands who disappear. He's really at the bottom of the of the heap. And so I thought I'm going to make him a character because the traditional American detective is a loner who lives on the margins of society. Um, thank you to people like um, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And so I was it wasn't a parody, but I was working into that. But I also wanted to the, the arc of the book was that he follows all these clues. A woman comes in, you know, the, the, the typical beautiful woman, the dame who's you know from uptown and he's downtown even though he's his office is in Spanish Harlem, and he's the kind of guy who'll do anything for money. There's a sign on his uh, on his wall that says, because he, he works in the barrio, the sign says, food, ex- food stamps unacceptable as payment. So anyone who has that kind of sign, you know the kind of people they're working with. So she hires him to find her husband who's missing. And he actually finds why he's missing in one day that he's been murdered in a Times Square, you know, flea bag hotel. So his job's over, he thinks. And he tries to, you know, sort of get a little more money out of the woman, but his job is over. And then she visits again and um, wants to hire him because the police have said he's just a victim of uh, like a pimp or something like that. So he doesn't care. I mean, he just wants the money and she's going to hire him to find. So he starts to, to you know, to um, find out about the guy and he finds out that this man had at least three or four different lives going back 20 years. Hmm. He was a rock and roll singer. He was a, he, he, he went down to Mexico and he um, he became a, a part of a rebellion. He was in Germany and was 
part of a spy. So he's got all these other identities. So instead of looking for the killer, he winds up trying to figure out who this guy was, thinking if I can find out who he was, maybe I can find out who killed him. So that was the basis. So I sort of veered away from the the traditional um, detective novel. And my ending was a little bit off the wall. I mean, it made sense, but the the editors and agents I showed it to said, this is really good, but um, you know, we can't sell it like this because fans of detective novels, they want their detective to um, to solve the, the crime. And mine didn't. And I was really stubborn then because I was young. I was, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30. So I said, damn it, you know, if they're not going to publish it the way I want it, I'm going to stick it in a drawer. And then 20 years later, five years later, I found it. And that's the story. I thought, oh, maybe publishing has changed and I can update some of this. And it wasn't. And I gave it to an editor. I had worked on a true crime book called Dead End about the Kimeses, the, the mother and son drifter that killed a woman and then took over her um, Upper East Side townhouse. And he read the book and he said, this is really good. And we publish it if you change the ending. And so I said, OK, I'll change the ending. So I sold out. So it, it, it took me 25 years to figure out how to sell out. And, you know, that was that was the way it worked. OK. Now, uh, and was that the, uh, the beginning of uh, Henry Swan? It was. And, and you'll notice that the title is uh, Swan's Last Song, because I thought I was never going to write another one. It was his last song because he gets so disillusioned by the business. Um, he's a logical guy and logic doesn't work for him. And then he quits. At the end of the book, he quits. So I had no intention of writing another one. And frankly, I wouldn't have, except I got nominated for Seamus. Huh. I had no idea what it was. And not only did I have no idea what it was, but I think it was in Indiana, Indianapolis that year. And they sent me an invitation, as they do. And I said, I'm not going out. I'm not paying to go out to Indianapolis. And a friend of mine lived near there. And she said, well, I'll go, um, you know, in, in case you win, I'll, I'll accept the award for you. I said, I'm not going to win. But here's what you can do for me is when they get to my category and they name the winner and it's not me, I want you to get up and say, what the fuck? And walk out. <laughs> So, of course, she never went and never did it. But that was my attitude at that time, John, is I, I didn't even go to the damn dinner, which I should have. But I just didn't understand what what the award was and why they had chosen me, especially since I wasn't going to write another. But that's what got me to write another, because I said to myself, damn it, I'm going to keep writing these things until I win something. Mm. And then halfway into the second book, I just loved doing it so much that I thought, you know, I can write about anything I want as long as there's a crime angle to it. So I decided I'm not going to do murder mysteries. I don't do murder mysteries. or haven't yet. Um, all the crimes are non-murder crimes. It's not about finding the guy who killed Roger Ackroyd or anything. It's other crimes that I think touch people like me more than, than, than murder. I mean, I don't know anyone who's murdered, thank goodness, but I know there are people murdered. And I just thought, you know, there's <clears throat> on TV, there's probably, what, 50 murders a week. I just didn't want to write that. So, But I realized that I can write about crime and really write about people and situations. And so that's why I decided to keep writing them. But it was all because of the shameless. If I hadn't been nominated, the likelihood is I would never have written another crime novel. Well, can I ask you a question or two? Sure. First question is, you, you dust off the man, 
manuscript, which was written out of anger at Columbia hoity-toity professor. And and then times change. But during that two-plus decade, you also became a better writer. Not, Absolutely. Not necessarily a crime fiction or police procedurals, but just a better writer. Did When you looked at it with those eyes, after all those years, did you did you feel the need to make revisions or was it just to change the ending, mollify the editor? Well, it's a really good question because um, I've thought about this a lot. What made me a good journalist was that I could tell a story and I could, I, I was a fiction writer. What made me a better fiction writer was that I had been a journalist. And I explained, I can explain that. I, lo- I learned so many things about writing from being a journalist that I never would have known if I didn't. So I looked down on it at the beginning and then I, and then I changed my mind. And also a lot of the techniques are, are crossover. So I, I came up during the time of the new journalism, you know, Tom Wolfe and, mm-hmm. and uh, Gay Talese and all those. So they were, they were creating a, an art form out of nonfiction, which was very close to novels. I mean, Truman Capote really, you know, put it all together and then Norman Mailer. So I, I did, I learned a lot. And so the, the, I never had, I, I was always proficient as a writer. So when I pulled it out, and looked at it, I'm sure stuff I changed because I became a better writer. One of the things that you, you learn as a journalist is to write to a word count. And I think that's really important because a lot of people overwrite. And um, so that was a really important lesson for me. The other thing I had to do was interview people. I was very shy and um, somehow I became very comfortable asking people questions. It, it, it made me feel less shy. So I learned how to interview, and I but I learned how to create a scene by being a fiction writer. So they really came together for me in a, in a perfect storm kind of way. So that, as I recall, when I went back to that that manuscript, first of all, so much had changed in the world. I mean, you know, we had cell phones, we had, you know, all, all DNA, everyone knows about DNA and all that stuff. So I had to set it a little pre, I had to set it where it was actually a little later than where it was actually written. It was written for to be in the 70s. And I moved it up to the early 90s, where everyone didn't have a cell phone and, and computers were just starting to, home computing was just starting. So I cheated a little. So I had to, those are the changes I had to make. I don't remember making a lot of stylistic changes. I do remember cutting some because I learned how to write, as I said, to a word count and it became sharper. So I think it was a better book by the time I, I sent it out. Now, well, just a little aside to give you a chance also to sip water is that I, I go back to my first novel, General Gen Literary, and I wrote it because the muse was beating in my head to write it. And I did and came out and it passed the muster of an editor and a line editor. I got a good book uh, designer, cover designer, and I put it out into the world. But then life got in the way and I had you know, my writing co- career, which I was hoping to start, had to be put on hold for time until my life could uh, be put back in equilibrium again. And when I came back to it, I started writing again with that same freshness, that same desire, that same interest. And I, I went back and occasionally uh, I sit down and I read my first novel. I'm sure I'm not the only uh, writer to do that. And I still get goosebumps from some of the scenes, some of the chapters that I wrote. And to to me, that that's my sense that, yes, I'm getting better as a writer. I'm getting better at the craft. But my original writings, the things that spoke to me, the things that I did uh, to put together the story that I want to put together still resonates today. Now, am I going to be the same guy to, to write that again? Uh, no. I think I'll be writing so different and better, hopefully, as, I, as we all work on craft. But did you get the sense now that I, I, I kind of framed it that way? Did you get a sense that the, the rawness or the originality of what you wrote uh, still uh, resonated very strong? 
Navalny with you some later and all it had to do would be brought up to the near future? Is that? I, I think I think that's partially right. I think that if I didn't learn something about writing in those 20, 25 years, um, shame on me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did, but I was, I had a sort of a natural, I, I had a good story and it was a good idea and I was weaving in all these um, uh, you know, conspiracies in real life and a lot of this stuff. And so I, I learned how I was a better writer by the time I went back to it, but the bones were there. I didn't have to strip it. And I, I don't know why it's not bragging. I, it, it, it wasn't the first novel I had written. First of all, I had two other unpublished novels in, in my drawer. Oh, okay. So I had learned from, from them. Um, so I, I don't remember having to strip it at all. I, I remember having to um, do a, um, a sort of a, an edit and a, and a rewrite by bringing it up. So th- the bones were pretty, were pretty much there. I, I did not do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, changing the character or the characters or whatever. I was surprised, frankly, that it did because often you look at old stuff and you cringe. Um, and, and if you don't cringe, that probably means you've, you've done a pretty good job. But believe me, there's plenty of cringing. As a matter of fact, when I have to do readings, the thing I hate most is to read from a book that's already been published because, uh, and people who know you, who know me will, will tell you, I'll almost always read something I'm working on as opposed to um, what's come out um, because I can see all the things I would write differently. <laughs> so, and I know I can't if I'm, if I'm reading from the, the actual book. Okay. So I've always had that, that, that sense. So, so I didn't have it any more specially for Swan's last song after I finished than I have it for every single book that I, that I write. But then the further I get away from it, if I go back, it's almost like, oh, I wrote this? Really? This is not, not bad. You know, pretty good. So uh, I try not, but I, I rarely read. It's like an actor who doesn't watch themselves on screen. I, mm-hmm. I rarely go back and read. But this was raw in the sense that I could change anything. So psychologically, it worked for me. It wasn't a published book that I was rewriting it or working on. It was this one. Perfect. That's really neat. Now, you said that the that the external validation given to you by the Seamus word uh, gave you, spurred you on to continue writing, writing Henry Swan. Can you just kind of talk about him as a character and how he's grown over the, the novels? Was it seven novels now coming on eight? Um, no, I'm doing, I just can't, uh, finished the fifth, which is out now. Okay, I apologize. Swan, that's okay. Swan's down. And I've ended the series, at least in my mind, I've ended the series. And we can talk about that if you want. But yes, he has definitely evolved. Um, definitely. Um, well, A. Conan Doyle said that he ended the series and killed off Sherlock Holmes, much to the uh, sadness and wailing and gnashing teeth of uh, readers. And he had to bring him back. So never say never, right, Charles? Exactly. That's why I always say that. In my mind now, I didn't kill off the character. Okay. In my mind now, I've taken it as far as I you know, want to take it or can take it. I'm on to other things now. But does that mean I'll never go back to him? I can't say never, just just like you said. Never say never. That's right. So t- let's just go over the, the character arc of Henry a little bit, uh, how he's evolved as a uh, as a detective and as a human being, or has he pretty much stayed the same throughout the course of the novel? I, I don't think he stayed the same. Uh, I'll describe him a little. <clears throat> um, he had a wife and a son, and the wife was killed in a, um, a freak accident, New York City accident, where a, a manhole cover blows and it, and it practically cuts her in half. Mm. And, and his son is maybe four or five at the time and he can't take care of him. So the son lives in middle America, like Indiana or Minnesota or someplace that with her parents. So he's, so he's, he's, he's uh, on the borderline of being depressed all the time. He's very cynical. Um, You know, he's going through the motions. He's really, 
at base, not trying to find other people, but trying to find himself. So that's how I set him up. Um, and he has grown because he's left the, the barrio and he's got a different venue now. He's got a partner who people I think like better than him. He's a, a kind of a slovenly disbarred lawyer named Goldblatt. Um, Perfect and, name for a slovenly yeah, disbarred lawyer. I use um, my friend's names in the in the book often, at the books, the Swan books. And he's named after my friend Mark Goldblatt, who is not a disbarred lawyer and not slovenly. But, I love <laughs> so, but And he gets a big kick out of being in the books as, as Goldblatt. I never give a first name. Okay. That's good. That's that's cute. I like that a lot. So he has a partner and he's slow and uh, Swan is slowly uh, cleaning up or go, going. Yes. Yeah, and more, oh. more self-realization, more self-actualization, maybe some more passion. Yes, absolutely. Not too much compassion, but it, but at heart he always was because even that sign in the, in, you know, food stamps unacceptable, he actually does, you know, if some elderly lady comes in, you know, it's it's like he's gruff, but he will, he'll, he'll probably wind up working for her if she tells him a, a good enough story. So he had the basics, but because of this freak accident that, that, that ruined his life, changed it forever, um, you know, he's he's cynical. Um, and the interesting thing is I wrote it and I, you know, people read it and women, particularly women, say, oh, I want to know more about the son. You know, what's going on there? And they were more interested in the relationships. So finally, in the fourth one, um, Swans Down, I actually thought, okay, one of the cases is going to involve his son. His son, who's a teenager now, runs away. And so Swan is called by these his ex-in-laws, told about this, and he has to go looking for his son while he's on two other cases. And I won't say how it ends, but no. you still, uh, well, I don't want to say anything more about whether he finds him or not. No, no, don't, don't. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm anti-spoiler. I mean, I, I want I want the readers to get hooked on your first book, and I want them to go through the series. And we're not going to give them any spoilers. But I like the fact that uh, it's a loose end that you decide that you want to explore. But after four books, the boy's grown up. He, you know, there's still um, unresolved feelings about what happened uh, with his deceased wife and the, the boy's mother. Um, there's probably feelings about the boy and what could have been and what ended up being and now uh, what is. And I think that's a great way to uh, bring him back into the to the uh, stories while at the same time weaving other, other stories within the book. So that sounds great. And I, I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. Thanks. And I'll just say this, you know, I, I'll quote my friend um, Reed Farrell Coleman who had a long running series, the Mo Prager series, and he stopped the series too. And, and I do what he does. Um, um, what he did is the, the, the character ages. You know, a lot of these books, the, the, the character stays the same age. He's right. aged. My books, he ages as the book goes along and reads as well. And Reed said, you know, I just didn't want to have um, Mo Prager in the old age home trying to solve crimes. And I thought, exactly. You know, it's like there's a time to just, he's not solving crimes anymore. But right after I said this, I won, I, I read this. I was a judge for the Edgars last year. And I read this wonderful book called Only to Sleep. And um, this writer had gotten the, the rights from the um, uh, the the, the uh, estate to write another um, Chandler, you know the, the de- oh yes, oh and, yes, and Philip he writes Martin. as a seventy-two-year-old. Right, he's in uh, semi-retirement in uh, Baja, California. Right, and he gets he gets dragged back in again. That's right, and it was a terrific book, and it worked. So I thought, well, you know, maybe you can at some point go back, and the character is, you know, on on social security. I just wasn't ready to do that and I didn't really have any ideas as the same with Reed he, mm-hmm. he you know so but as you said never 
never say never. Right. Yeah. Instead of uh, you know, scotch neat, it's uh, vodka and Viagra. Exactly. <laughs> Anyhow. So um, now you, you've, you've talked about reading other writers. Is there a particular crime writer or fiction writer that you like that has a fictional detective that somehow resonates with you or that you know, you'd like to follow that uh, character's career as well? Yes. I think um, my first love, when I decided to write crime, a crime novel, I went back and read, and I had written, read a lot of crime novels when I was a kid, but I went back and read everything I could, and I rediscovered um, uh, Dashiell Hammett. Yes. And I fell in love with the, all over again, the Continental Op, and, and all his, you know, uh, the Nick and Nora Charles and the Maltese Falcon, all those those characters I fell in love with. So those, and and, and then of course um, Chandler's, um, but also, but but I read so many, and I and I liked a lot. I liked a lot of the the pulp ones, like um, you know, uh, Big Jim Thompson and um, James M. Kane. And now what I've done, and it was actually, I thought it was going to be daunting to um, be a judge for the Edgars. I didn't realize there were going to be almost seven hundred books in my apartment to read. But I got a chance. It was actually good. Cause I got a chance to to read some people. I I my, some of my favorites is, and I'm not just saying this. He became a friend after. Uh, you know, I read the books after, but I, I think David Swinson's uh, Frankie Marr is, um, is is a great character. Uh, I think Reed Coleman's uh, Mo Prager is is a great character. I haven't read his Gus Murphy books yet. Um, I think there are so many really good writers that I would hesitate to to um, name more. But um, I, I found some some in, in in judging this, and I know that you're a judge now, and you'll probably find people that oh, you know, I got to read more by this guy. And so there were a lot of people um, like that for me, um, you know, so. Oh, the judge experience, as you know, is a wonderful way to curate great writing. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, I was sitting there this past uh, January, uh, February, and March with, uh, I only had 45 short stories to digest out of, you know, the all the all the submissions. There was 45, and we had to boil it down to, you know, our, our top ones. But for me, it was like a little piece of chocolate, or actually two pieces of chocolate every night after dinner. I would sit down with the short stories, and I would read them. And it gave me just such a nice feel for different writing styles, different ideas. You know, how did they d- d- design their uh, characters in a short story? What was the art like? Uh, what was the plot like? Uh, you know, I love the, you know, how people did their hooks. And I wanted to have a satisfying ending, like a nice little piece of chocolate. And I just I just had such a wonderful opportunity there and say, oh, this is really neat. Gee, I wish I had thought of that. Or my goodness, look at the way they did that phrase. And, you know, none of it's going to show up in any of my writings ever. But you, you can't, never know. You never know. Well, you can't, you can't but help but say, I'm learning. Uh, I'm, I'm getting. I'm getting wider because I had been kind of a, a very narrow reader in my my life. As you know, as a private investigator, a short fraud investigator, I read Grisham, I read Connolly, I read Laura Lipman, I read, of course, uh, Lawrence Block, and, uh, and I think oh Joseph Wamba. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed that they they their publishers had them on different schedules. So it was nice that you know as I was finishing one, another was coming out, and I just go from one to the next to the next. And what this did for me. Uh, 
as being a judge opened my eyes up to so many different writers, writing styles, and points of view and different uh, settings. Um, just amazing how they could put this together. And uh, it really, I really enjoyed it. So uh, anybody that has a chance to be a judge for any type of uh, a writing contest or an association such as Private Eye Writers America, oh, jump at the chance because it only, only makes you uh, stronger yourself. Can't but help but get better at your craft by, by seeing what other people do, what other people do well, and, what other, and when being able to recognize when people don't do something. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Exactly. You, know, you, know, you know, knowing why something doesn't work is just as important as knowing why something does, but it's not my episode, it's yours. Um, what what did you think of your experience yourself being judge? And that was some heavy lifting, by the way. Novels, full-size novels. Oh, my God. I, I, I Before that, I had done short stories, and I um, had also done video, which is the smartest thing I ever did, because most of the stuff I had watched anyway, and they would just send me DVDs, and I'd pop them in two hours, or I'm finished, or an hour. So that was easy. But I, I learned a couple of things. First of all, I hope I never stop learning how to write and how to write better. I can't imagine that I'll ever wake up one morning and say, you know, I know everything there is. And I challenged myself. So my friend Tim um, O'Mara um, edited a, uh, a book. It was his idea. It was called um, Down to the River. And you had to write a story that had something to do with the river. And I said, yeah, I'll write one. And I decided, you know, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to use the second person. Maybe wow. It won't. You do this, so, you do that, you, 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 you. Oh, my Lord. So I wrote the story in that. And I'm, when the book comes, the book came out. And in two or three of the reviews, they chose my story as one of the ones they like best. And I thought, this is, you know, so what I'm saying is, I hope I never stop experimenting. And the new book I'm working on now is a character that I kind of character I've never written before. He's got anger management problems. He's got insomnia. Um, there is a murder involved. So I, I don't think I, I, I hope I'll never stop learning. And you're absolutely right about learning the best way when people ask me to, to how do they to learn to write, read everything you can. And teaching has helped me amazingly because I teach these classes where people write and I can see all the good things they do. And as you made a, a terrific point, you also see the bad things they do and you try to avoid them and you try to use the good things they do. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, both being a, a kind and the other thing I learned in doing the short story thing and, and the, especially the short story is a lot of these name people like Block, like Joyce Carol Oates, like Stephen King are names because they're good. What they do is a good job. And I often, because I hadn't read a lot, a lot of that stuff before, or them, I, I had to learn that, that they, they are good. Do they mess up sometimes? Absolutely. I think Stephen King overwrites everything, but he's really good. He knows what he's doing. And Joyce Carol Oates, there's no one who writes more than, than her. As a matter of fact, I, I remember years ago, I was doing an essay for the New York Times Book Review on how writers feel when they finish a book. So, uh, And I got to interview all these writers, and I thought, well, I'm going to interview, try to interview Joyce Carol Oates, because she finishes a book every three weeks, you know, so she'll have something to say. So I call her up and she had, I didn't, wasn't working on a computer yet. And she was, and she spent the first 10 minutes of the conversation trying to convince me to use a computer, hmm. to use a processor, which I eventually did. And uh, so that's all, you know, so, and then for the people who are listening who want to know what she does when she finishes a book, it shouldn't surprise you. She said, I go into the other room and write a poem. I write poetry. So she's always writing. Wow. And she said to me, you know, I have a friend, Richard Ford, and you can't tell him this if you interview him. And I was going to interview him. But when he finishes a book, he goes out into the into the to the forest and he kills small creatures. He goes hunting. So sure enough, I, I interview um, Ford and I ask him what he does after when he finishes a book, how he feels. I go out and hunt. <laughs> so he was very honest and she predicted what, what he would say. But I, 
told him that she told him that first. Oh boy. So, uh, but finishing a book, uh, I just yesterday, uh, at about, uh, 6.45 PM last night, finished the rough draft of my climax and what I'm writing right now. And, uh, thank you. But it was, it was, it's still the rough draft and it was the first draft climax. But knowing that I had to write it this week was both, uh, I've been wanting to get to this point. You know, you want to get to the climax, you want to get just like a reader does. But on the other hand, I was kind of fearing it too, because I knew that it, it had to represent, that it had to be worthy of the writer's, uh, the reader's attention, that it would be satisfied, that it would be, it would not be soft or it wouldn't be too jarring. It had to be like a baby bear, so just right. And I, I was nervous about it. And I, I really was. And during, as the week went on, I was stewing on it, using a, using a phrase uh, by James Scott Bell, stewing, brewing, pruing, and doing. He, he actually talks about that nonfiction called Last Pages. And uh, and luckily, I got to read that before I wrote my last fifth page. But sitting there with the uh, ending was, or the climax, I should say, was very daunting. That, But once it was over, I felt that I had done myself right and I hadn't uh, cut any corners. Uh, a lot more uh, showing than telling, which I'm happy with. And uh, But just the same, the sense of, oh boy, that was nice. I got that done. And uh, as a writer... It's uh, it's important that you know there are certain milestones in a book that when you hit them that you you should get a sense of I don't want to use the word gratification accomplishment maybe or satisfaction but if you don't have that then you should get the hell out of the business and go pump gas I mean you know it's just like I know it's an old saying because everybody pumps their own gas days uh, or work at a supermarket you know I mean I just say that because uh, if you really don't if you don't get jazzed you know at certain points in your book then what's the what's the what's the use what's the what's the bother right are you with me on that yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. So if there had to be one uh, author that you would uh, recommend new pe- that people read because they should be well-read or more widely read or more diversely read, is there somebody that you really feel that is is somebody that is uh, you think meets your uh, good housekeeping seal of approval and that their character is one that'd be worth exploring? Yes. And the name escapes me now. It's someone I read for the contest and I will I will think of it. Um, and he's uh, he, he lives in, I think, North Carolina and he's uh, uh, a very literary uh, kind of uh, MFA writer, and he um, he wrote a book that was I thought terrific. And I'm, I'll, I'll find the name before before we um, we stop. But but yes, I found some new um, writers that I really liked, and I always Sam Weeby, I think that's how I pronounce it, uh, W I E B E, and then a guy by the name of Derek Haas. And I always when I when I find something like that, this is why Facebook is great. I'll find them on Facebook and I'll tell them. And another one was James Ben, who writes World War Two um, uh, crime novels. Uh, uh, his character Billy Boyle, the Billy Boyle novelist, um, in the novel, and he's a uh, a Boston cop who gets drafted into World War Two and begins to work as an investigator for uh, Eisenhower. And the other one that I found that I thought was terrific was uh, Dan Fesperman, and um, he he was uh, I, I, he's a terrific writer too. He writes a little bit on the spy kind of. Uh, spectrum, but he's good. Uh, so I did find people like that and I'll, I will now read whatever they, they put out. That's great. And uh, you said Weebly's name kind of quickly. Could you do that again? Sam, me? it's it's Sam W-I-E-B-E. And I think he's lives in um, like, uh, you know, Vancouver or something like that. But I was knocked out by <clears throat> by his book and, um, you know, and I actually wrote him and Derek Haas, who's a, a screenwriter. Um, uh, those are the people that I, the, the new people that I, um, that I found uh, that I liked. And Haas, is that uh, 
H A A S. Yes. Okay. Yes. Derek. Derek Haas. And these are people I don't. Uh, I just found them and, and like them. Well, uh, Sam Weebly has uh, cut you down. Invisible Dead. That's it. Cut right. you down. One that I read. Okay. And then uh, Hollywood North which seems to be a kind of a neat instead of North Hollywood. And he is from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And the Vancouver crime no- novels cut you down. Invisible Dead. Last the Independence. So uh, I, I give that fellow a shout out um, because uh, if somebody I trust for a recommendation such as you recommends that, then I think my listeners should take a look at somebody else. Um, and I give you the. Uh, I'll give you the um, the. The, the other fellow is David Joy, J-O-Y, and the book is The Line That Held Us. And I thought that was terrific. And Only to Sleep is, is Lawrence Osborne. Oh, and I heard it, about – yes, yeah. yes. I, I actually wrote him uh, – I actually wrote him to uh, – to uh, try to get on to uh, the, the podcast, but right. he, he lives out of uh, the country and has, and is uh, behind the barrier of the wall of a uh, literary agent. Or- yeah, and I'll give you two others. One is a book called Blood Standard by Laird, L-A-I-R-D, Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N. And the other one is um, is a book called Liar's Girl by Catherine Ryan Howard. And I believe she's she's either Irish or English. But it's really funny. When I started to, to be the judge, I gave my a little a few rules for me if it had a cat on the cover i wasn't going to choose it okay and i didn't want to read books by about hitmen and serial killers i was totally you know blissed you know there was enough of that mm-hmm. and sure enough two of the books that i chose for my top 10 liar's girl being one of them <clears throat> is about in a way about a serial killer but it's not it was such a creative way of dealing with it it's it's a it's a from the point of view of a, of a woman a young woman in her 30s when she was in college her <clears throat> boyfriend was arrested and tried and convicted as a serial killer and now it appears that she that that he might not have been and so it's how this affected her and the um the the one about the hitman was is blood standard and he did it laird baron did it so well that i thought you know that that's so much for rules so uh, <laughs> that's right yeah so i so those are the books that i uh, among others too i'm really just picking a, a few out i don't want to be here all day but mm. I, I i really like those writers and now I will read more of their stuff when I can. And that's fantastic and you know honestly uh, uh, the more wider you read the better writer you are and that's but something. I, I don't know about you John but I have this if I'm writing fiction I don't read fiction and I don't for two reasons. One is I'm afraid I'm going to be affected and my writer's going to ch- writing's going to change by reading fiction while and the other is <clears throat> so often I read these books and they're so good I'm afraid I'll say to myself what the hell am I doing? These oh I know the imposter syndrome feel you know it just when you so, see, see something that's great you say oh my god how could I even come close to that that's right so yeah. I, I try I'll read nonfiction or my classwork or so um, and then like the summer this summer I just binge on I'm reading fiction but I, it's hard for me to do it while I'm writing okay now interesting you should say that because my experience was that for 42 years as an investigator uh, after I left Lee Park many many years ago I read fiction but I wouldn't read true crime and I wouldn't re- watch true crime because it was like the plumber you know, mm-hmm. having to uh, watch a show on plumbing. It's like, no, I, I do that for a living every day. And my fiction became my uh, source of uh, outlet, as it is for many people that have day jobs that do other things. I just happen to be a real life investigator in the daytime. And I wanted to read the fictional characters at night uh, for obvious reasons. But but as a uh, but now that I'm writing fiction and reading fiction, it seems like I, I feel as an older guy that it, it's a chance for me to catch up. Mm-hmm. It's a chance for me to see 
see how other people write, see what works for them, what doesn't work, what resonates for them, what doesn't. And it gives me a wider breadth because I feel like, you know, I am a little older and I want to catch up to, uh, to become a better writer. And the more that I read in my genre, the better I am. Now, am I going to get overdone with this? Well, I guess I could get overdone with it, but as long as like you just went through six or seven names there and we're totally, um, excited about their, um, their story premise, their characters, what they did, how they did it. I'm never going to read this. I'm never going to read that. And lo and behold, you read that and you say, wow, they did a great job. So, I mean, as long as you still have that excitement about it, I feel the same way. As long as I still have that excitement about um, what I read, I want to continue doing this. Uh, the, the whole purpose, uh, Charles, of this podcast is to share uh, your fictional detectives, you know, so, and your fictional detective, Henry Swan, and on also the people that you enjoy reading uh, about fictional detectives so they can share that with other people. They can, Now, not every one of you, the people that you like to read is going to resonate with anybody, everybody else, but maybe there'll be a few jewels in there for somebody to pick from, you right. know? Um, meeting uh, David Swinson a couple weeks ago after uh, interviewing him uh, after I had seen his book at the International Thrillers Writers Association uh, conference a few week, uh, weeks prior. Now I'm reading Frankie Marr and I'm reading him from the beginning. So mm-hmm. that's something I might not have done before, you know? Right, uh, right. He introduces me to Casey Barrett mm-hmm. and now I'm going to read Duck Darley and I'm going to read, I, I'm starting at the beginning with, with Duck Darley. Even though I have the latest book, uh, Tower of Songs, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to the beginning and get the other ones off of Kindle. So for me, reading other and uh, reading other writers and, in, and writing about their flawed detectives, I think only uh, will help me sharpen my saw. I think that, so. And I said that pretty well without stumbling you over did. it. You did. Sharpening my saw. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you, Charles? What's what's happening for you? What do you what's uh, next on your agenda? Where are you going? And how okay. and, and how can people get in touch with you? Okay. Well, what I'm, one of the things I'm going to do, we didn't talk much about it, but um, I, I, li- I really got hooked and people did too on one of the characters from Second Story Man, the bad guy, Francis Hoyt. So uh, I'm thinking of doing a spinoff of Second Story Man to, because um, he's a really interesting character. He's a really bad guy, but there's something about him that, that uh, kind of like the Ripley novels um, that, that gets me and evidently gets other people. So that, that's what I may do next. But right now I'm finishing another, uh, finishing a novel, a new novel that, that might be part of a series or a standalone. Uh, it's called Canary in the Coal Mine. And it's about that um, detective that um, uh, I, I mentioned to you that he's got anger management problems and insomnia and all that. And he gets dragged into a case that, um, you know, sort of can, can be the end of him. Is it, so, is it ready for a pre-order yet? No, no, it's good. It's not, it hasn't even gone out to anyone yet. I'm just trying to finish it now. Well, uh, as, part but, of, uh, as part of my podcast, I, I always want to, anybody that's on my podcast, uh, when they have something new and coming out, I want to uh, put that in the show notes mm-hmm. of the podcast so that uh, now people have heard you, they've talked they, and they know that Canary in a Coal Mine is coming out. Let let me know so I can let my reader uh, listeners know, I will. and uh, we'll we'll see how that turns out. So, and hey, John, then, going? Yeah. To, are you going to VoucherCon? Are you going to be there? And will I see you there? Or, or um... no? There's this lady from the Midwest. <laughs> there's this lady from the Midwest who I told that she has to go out there and stand up and say something. Oh, okay. Say something yeah. dirty. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, yes, I, I was I was planning to go to uh, VoucherCon. Uh, I was planning to go before they even uh, made me a judge. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I was uh, and I and I'm also believe it or not I have a debut novel that's oh, go, that's cool. going to be uh, announced out there mm-hmm. and I'm on a panel so uh, 
uh, all thanks to uh, Lawrence Block. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to, That's I have great. to thank him. He, uh, he turned me on to the Private Eye Writers of America and Seamus. And then through that, uh, the Mystery Writers of America. And uh, yes, so, that's a, so that's a long see, answer. So you'll see me lose at the dinner and, and I have to put my losing face on. <laughs> I don't uh, know about losing there. face. But I, you know, just talk a minute about Second Story Man. I was shocked that it was um, it, it was named because it, evidently it falls under the parameters, but there's no one who's technically a PI. There's a, there's a retired um, investigator, a Connecticut State investigator, and he's, he's working properly privately. So I guess that's how it, it qualified. But I was very shocked when, when they, um, you, you know, when they announced, when I got an email from a friend of mine congratulating me and I didn't even know. And I quickly went to Google and um, found out that, yeah, it really was nominated. So you know, I, I was just shocked because I, it's my favorite novel of what it, it really is in the spirit of this other novel I did, Devil in the Hole, which was based on a true crime. And it was told from the perspective of over 20 people. And everyone said, you can't do that you can't do that. And then it was Suspense Magazine named it one of the best crime novels of 2013. Mm. And I really could do it. And the the advice that I would give people who are listening, and you too, except I don't think you need it, is never listen to other people about what you can't and can't can't do. I know. Just do it. Because if you're a good writer, you're going to pull it off. And I tell my students this, they'll say, well, can I write? Can I do this? And I'll say, if you're good and you can pull it off, you can do anything. So that would be my advice. And even, even, even if you don't uh, fail, but fail better. In other words, uh, give it a shot, find out what didn't work, why it didn't work, and then figure out what you have to do again. You know, the greatest impetus from what I see driving you is that uh, professor back at Columbia telling you that you didn't have what it took. And, and, and that's and, true of anything. If you tell me I can't do something, you can be sure I'm going to do it and I'm going to try because I just, it, uh, it's just in my nature to, you know, I don't want like people to be pigeonholed and to tell me I can't do it is only going to get me to do it. And it's so, and if you're, if you, if you, on the other hand, if you tell me to do something um i probably won't do it but if you ask me to do it i will mm. so so that's you know that's just my personality um <laughs> I, I don't take orders very well charles the contrarian yes so all right well uh how can people reach you because that they they want to uh follow up with you maybe uh on some of the names and some of the other authors books but they also want to find out about what you've written and uh, why second story man has been nominated so looking at the calendar on the day that we recorded this, I noticed that it was National Tech Gremlins Day, and we got cut off, unfortunately, at the very, very end. The way you can reach Charles is through his website, www.charlessalzberg.com. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest in your time today. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guests next week are Robert and Andrea Orozco of Advanced Professional Investigations. Robert has been a professional investigator for over a decade and a half, and he is a highly experienced uh, investigator in insurance defense investigation and specializes in surveillance for insurance defense and corporate investigation. Robert became president of the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado in November of 2010. During his term as president, Robert was influential in introducing Colorado's PI license bill. The bill would ultimately be passed into law after 36 years of previous attempts by PPIAC. It took effect in July of 2015. Andrea has been a professional investigator for over a decade and a half as well, and has spent the majority of her career working in Colorado. As a former vice president of training for the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, she was responsible for training and education of investigators throughout the state. 
State. Andrea is currently the first vice president of the National Association for the Investigative Profession, NCISS, and also serves on her state board of investigators, PPIAC, as VP of Legislation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in the book titled Mugshots, my favorite tech stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around those people. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Yeah.